Welcome to Iteration, a weekly podcast about programming, development, and design through the lens of amazing books chapter by chapter. I am joined, as always, by JP. Hey, JP. Good morning. Good morning. That is weird. Recording in the morning. I'm still not used to this new schedule. Yeah, it's 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 like super efficient, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's great. So what have you been up to in the past week or so since we last spoke? Past week or so. Dude, I'm just like really busy at work. Yeah. We're just like trying to ship all these things in the open door mobile app right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, yeah, it's just been really, really crazy. But it's also been super fun. This is like the most React Native work we've got to do. But yeah, it's super, super fun. Just really, really time consuming. <laughs> yeah. Clarify me what you're doing. Are you guys creating new features right now at a specific interval? Or are you trying to like combine the two apps as this part of the acquisition? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Is we're trying to port over all of the most important features of open listings into the open door app. It just makes sense. And I think I've touched on this before, but it's just very unfortunate that our names are like insanely similar, like open door and open listings that when you see like verbiage inside of the open door app, that's like essentially a handoff, like, oh, you've gone to this step. Now here's open listings. It almost seems like what's going on now? Like that seems like an error almost. Mm -hmm. Now, if our startup was named like, I don't know, Sellerly.io, you know, it would be a <laughs> yeah. lot with know. an S though. S E L L Sellerly. <laughs> See, now that would be a lot different. And I think the handoff would be a little smoother, but for all intents and purposes, it just sort of makes sense to go in this direction. So yeah, right now I'm on the visits team. So visits is everything that has to do with touring, touring homes and going to open houses and also inspections. So that's what my team is focusing on is basically letting open door users tour open listings houses. Nice. I actually did an open listings tour the other day and thought of you the whole time when I did it. It was really oh, fun. Cool. There was like a super cheap house for sale down the street. I was like, I got to go see how shitty this thing is. Like this is actually semi affordable to me. And we toured it. It was very shitty, of course, but it was a really fun experience and it worked really, really well through the app. So congrats to your team and it's, it's running well, I guess. Yeah, cool. Yeah, you probably touched stuff that I like worked on then if you went through like our tour booker flow, which is kind of crazy. Like I got the email reminder and I was like, I think I've seen a, a quick screenshot of this code at some point <laughs> when I was talking through something with JP. Yeah, like an ERB <laughs> file or something like that. Yeah, there was some some file I think I saw at some point. I was like, ooh, that's kind of fun. I think I know kind of what sends this email. So that was kind of fun. My past week has been filled with one of those silent errors that's pervasive in production. It was really a tricky one that we kind of had over on the wellness coaching platform. And it all had to do with scheduled emails. And it was like this week of trying to understand why scheduled emails were inconsistently sending. And we realized as well that this bug was since the dawn of time. Like since this app existed two years ago, we've had this bug. Oh, this is the Heroku thing, right? Yeah. And so actually what it ended up being is that Heroku scheduler is a best effort service, quote unquote. And so we were really depending on Heroku scheduler running every 10 minutes, but it turns out that it misses a lot of those blocks. Like every three or four days, it'll just kind of miss or run a block late or it, like within 48 hours, it's not uncommon for it to miss like two or three jobs and just not run. So PSA Heroku scheduler is not a hundred percent reliable service. So we just had to rework that script. So it like is reliably unreliable and it just kind of knows that not every block runs and so far it looks like our fix has been working well but that was an interesting long journey to figure out what that was and kind of go back and forth i love problems like that that aren't like 
pulling production down, but are urgent enough that you're really motivated to fix them. And it was really a good balance of like kind of stressful, wanting to get it fixed and really trying to dig deep and diagnose it and come up with good tests to quantify the problem. It was, it was good, but we got it solved, which is good. That's interesting. And Heroku, I mean, they tell you that it's not like 100% reliable, don't they? Like in the like fine print maybe, or I don't know. Yeah, so you can go start to finish adding Heroku Scheduler to an application without ever seeing that notice in any way. It's like in a blog post in 2013 where they're like, hey, we're reclassifying this service as best effort because we're tired oh. of people complaining of okay. missing blocks. Which, I mean, if you think about it for just a second, it makes sense. It's a free add-on to Heroku that it's not going to be 100% reliable. And even, like, I've been thinking about this problem more and when thinking about, like, a scheduled block window like that, like it's just bad code that breaks when one scheduled block is missed. Like obviously you want to build in some error tolerance and fault tolerance to where if it misses a block, it picks it up on the next. And so it's just like the more I think about it, the more I realize it was just really bad code in that specific instance, working off that false assumption. But at the same time, like you should never assume your server is going to run 100% reliably. Like that's a terrible assumption. <laughs> but I was like, ah, they're Heroku. They'll run the scheduled script. I don't have to worry about it. Um, but you know, uh, one of those things. So it was a good lesson to learn and like really helping me, it really reminded me of one of our books we did, what was it called? Um, we did like a three episode Exceptional sprint. Ruby. Yeah, that's what it was, Exceptional Ruby. But all about just like having the framework and the mindset of writing things to be unre reliably unreliable in a way, meaning like to be more fault tolerant, especially things like rake tasks or scripts or background jobs, like have retry built in and handle those uh, error handling. And it's just like all those takeaways from that book was definitely a lot of things that we thought about when implementing this approach to fix this bug for sure. Cool. Yeah. And I think a little bit of that also has to do with we've talked about in the past, like order dependency, or maybe this isn't related to your bug, but it kind of reminds me of the idea that like things shouldn't be order dependent. So like if one block misses, it shouldn't mm. like totally screw everything else up. Like totally given the, like given the order of the way that things run, like mm -hmm. if A misses, like B should still be able to like handle for that. I guess. Yeah. It was a hairy one because there's a lot in there. It's like temporal coupling is there as well, right. like we talked about. Another, It's like, do they run in the correct order? What if it misses a block? So it's those kinds of things. But the overall approach we took was basically, instead of just looking what should be scheduled and sending out in that 10 minute window, we checked to see if something has been sent in the last 12 hours if it's scheduled. And if it hasn't been sent in the last 12 hours, send it. So technically our scheduler could be down for 12 hours. When the next block runs, it would just send everything it hadn't sent for that 12 hour block where before we we're only checking what should send in that 10 minute window to try to keep things more efficient we weren't actually checking what has or hasn't send so it's just a re restructuring and rethinking and one of the things that enabled us to do that is it now does all those send methods and checking methods it's all background jobs so it's just checking and queuing up background jobs where before it was actually doing it all in line so we needed that script to be really really performant but a few months ago we switched to background jobs so it was a lot easier to refactor this all handling it via background jobs. So yeah, it was a good lesson. Maybe that's two cents takeaway. Maybe you're using Heroku schedule out there and you think it's going to be 100% reliable. It's not. So that's just a good uh, PSA there. So I want to jump into this week's chapter. We're getting toward the end of Practical Object Oriented Design by Sandy Metz. And this chapter is all about composition. The title is Combining Objects with Composition. And just to kind of introduce the chapter, we've kind of been working through and building up to this chapter over the past couple chapters. We initially started talking about inheritance, which is 
having a parent class and sharing behavior between a subclass and a parent class. Then last chapter, we talked about modules, which was the idea of sharing behavior between different classes. So not just in a hierarchy system, but actually delegating between them. This chapter really brings both those concepts together, really builds on top of modules more than anything. And it pushes it a lot farther into this idea of aggressively sharing code between classes to the point where you're essentially building these Lego bricks of modules, combining them together and to compose them into totally new and usable use cases. It's a really interesting chapter. I struggled with it in a couple parts. She got a little bit wonky. This one got a little bit into the weeds, so we'll do our best to try to distill all the best takeaways from it. Cool, yeah. I think I think it sort of behooves us to give like a, a too long didn't listen. So like what, or, or maybe even like summarize, like what is composition? Just because I feel like starting out with that and then sort of like reverse engineering or working our way backwards into the chapter helps. So like what is composition and how does it differ from inheritance? And this all really distills down into this. So inheritance is for is a relationships and composition is for has a relationships. So what does that mean? Okay, so for inheritance, let's take a step back. Inheritance is like how we've had our bicycle classes. In the past, we've had these, um, we had a base bicycle class and we had super classes that were specializations of it. Like for example, a road bike and a mountain bike. So a road bike is a bike, a mountain bike is a bike. But you can also think of things as like the sum of their parts. And that's how we think of composition. So a bike is composed of many parts. A bike has many parts. So you can think of it as just like a different mindset to take, whereas inheritance is, well, you know, is A. So composition at the end of the day is basically this idea of, is exactly what you said, like Lego bricks. And it's basically the sum of little tiny blocks. And I think that is like, just something to keep in mind. Now in practice, how do we actually implement something like this in code? Well, we'll get right into that in just a second. Yeah, before we jump into the actual code examples, I wanna talk a little bit more about this idea of the difference between is a and has a relationship. And so, you know, I wanna work on a specific example. So let's talk about a road bike in the domain that we've been talking about. So we've been talking about this like Happy Feet bicycle touring service. They have many types of bikes and we're building this theoretical platform to manage all these bikes and scheduling services to catch you up. So the idea here is that we're trying to describe bicycles and their component parts as, as objects, software objects. So the way that we've talked about different types of bikes so far through talking about this book is that we have the bike parent class like JP mentioned, and then a child class is a road bike. So a road bike is a bike, but the distinction that Sandy makes and the redefinition just to, to talk about it in a different way is that we have a bike class and for a road bike, it would be a bike class that has many road bike parts or has a road bike parts. And we'll talk about the distinction between a relationship to a mini, which is a little bit odd nuance that she talks about in the chapter. But the idea is instead of it being a road bike that is inherited from bike, it's inherited from bike and it is something that has many road bike parts. And so because it has many road bike parts or it has road bike parts, then it automatically is defined as the sum of its parts of this thing that is a road bike. So that's like the big difference between the way that we're thinking about these two things. So let's get into some kind of code examples and talk through how we implement this. 
cool. Yeah, I think you explained that a lot better than I did, which is great. <laughs> Just a different way, because it, it's a weird concept. So I want to make sure like we talk about it in a couple different ways. It's one of those things that needs to be said a few different ways to really get your head around it, I think. Sweet, yeah. And I think coming from a Rails background, it's like weird to see things like is A and what is it? Uh, is A and has A or has many? Yeah. Because I yeah, think she kept like, saying in this, like, has a parts, like has a plural concept, which was so weird. But because the parts object is a singular object that defines a collection of things. It was a little bit weird. I was like, ah, this is not English, but we'll stick with it. Yeah. And also because of like has many and belongs to relationships in Rails, it kind of like broke my brain for like a split second. You have to sort of <laughs> yeah. like not think of it in those terms. Otherwise, your brain just gets kind of messed up. Yeah. Um, that being said. There's a lot of code in this chapter, so we definitely have to strategically discuss this. So, okay, so let's revisit like the the code that we would be refactoring. And obviously, I'm not going to like read line by line, but just as a refresher, um, and I just touched up on this too, is the code that we're looking at are basically these three classes. It's our base class, our bicycle, that houses like the foundation for the bicycle. Now, as a reminder, you would never um, in in or like in your code base, you would never create instances of this bicycle. The bicycle subclass base class is just there so that you can have specializations of it. And those specializations are what you would be creating new objects of. For example, our specialization of the road bike or the mountain bike or the recumbent bike, those we would be doing like a road bike dot new and creating mm -hmm. instances of these things. Right. In our example so far, we'd never be calling bike dot new because it would be like this generic undefined bicycle like it, it wouldn't be a, a bicycle in the sense that we understand it because it wouldn't have the definition of a specific type of bicycle because each of those subclasses are what hold things like its tires and its parts and some of these other things that the definitions we we're talking about so yeah we have this parent based class of bicycle yeah totally and so some of the methods that are in it are like spares and as a reminder spares was an object that holds things like the tire size and the chain and when you create specializations of bicycle you could put like a spares method, like a local spares method in the superclass. For example, road bike would have like a local spares method that contains an object called tape color. And tape color would be merged into its parent spares method. And then so when you call an instance of road bike, you have a spares method that would house like the tire size, the chain, and the specialized tape color. Okay. And that is like basically where we are. And so in taking a step towards refactoring this and thinking like, how can I start using composition? You know, the way that Sandy approaches this is thinking like, okay, so like, let's just ignore the way that our code is currently structured and then think to ourselves, like, how is a bicycle composed? Like, at you know, an, an actual physical bicycle, like, how do you make a bicycle? And so the answer to that is obviously like, okay, well, bicycle has, has many parts. And so now you can start to think of the code in this way and think like, okay, so maybe, so what if I made a class called parts? And instead of having this like idea of local spares in the bicycle, which really has nothing to do with a bicycle itself, maybe we make this idea of like a spares class or a spares object, or sorry, a parts object. Yeah, and parts so object, yeah. we can compose this bicycle of all of these many parts. Yeah, so the idea is that we have this bicycle base class and we have this new class of parts, which is a singular object 
that contains many parts, which is took me a second to get my head around. And I don't know why I got so stuck on that. And then she continues down this path of building out these objects of specialization to again, create a new object called road bike parts. And then another one called mountain bike parts, which are each subclasses of the parts. And so the redefinition here starts to be implemented in code, which is this idea of parts defining the type of bicycle that they are. The thing that I, remind me JP, is there still a road bike class that's actually just made of road bike parts that still inherits from bicycle? Or are we instantiating a road bike? I'm trying to remember. Oh yeah, so now when we instantiate, when we, when we actually build this, I'm looking at the code now, is if we wanted a road bike, we would actually call bicycle.new parts and we would define the parts. So let's talk about how we would define the parts within it. So this actually restructures our code in a way that we're not actually anymore calling roadbike.new or mountainbike.new like we were before. We're actually using these different pieces to compose different objects on the fly, which makes a ton of sense once you walk through the example all the way. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting concept because now we no longer think of our bikes as specializations of some like base class. Now we think of bikes as, you know, a bike is a bike is a bike. A road bike is a bike. A mountain bike is a bike. They're all just bikes. And the difference now is that they are just composed of different things. And so the bicycle class now takes in a parts argument. So it's instantiated with a part. So you would do something like bicycle.new and then you'd pass in the different parts. So in, for example, you'd be like parts are road bike parts.new inside of the bicycle. And so that is the only distinction. So to answer your question, we no longer have these specializations. Yeah, which is really interesting. And I like this because it breaks all of the code into smaller pieces in a way, and it redefines what we're talking about. Because at its core, a bicycle is really just a collection of parts. It doesn't make a ton of sense to define it by some abstract idea of its collection of parts, but rather what is its specific collections. There's definitely pros and cons to this approach. Let's talk about that for just a second, because I feel like there is some senses of the idea of hierarchy working really well for this example, as long as our parts aren't too specialized or there aren't too many customized methods against them. Like, I'm not sure every single code base would need this level of specialization. And I even think this bicycle example might be moving into the area of a bit more contrived in this example, only because like this is a lot of over-engineering for just the idea of managing bicycles. But let's say we were talking about something that was maybe a little bit more complex, like a, a piece of software that manages different types of mortgages. And a mortgage type is defined by its attributes. And a mortgage has 120 different attributes from its rate of payment to its class to who the users are. And really there isn't any broad categories that define a mortgage, but it's really just a definition of all of its parts. You would start to understand very quickly how this would help uh, maintain and corral a code base like that because instead of having to have this specific class system or hierarchy or parent-child relationship of mortgage types, you could have all these different attributes or collection of parts or configurations that actually define the different mortgage types and you could share a bit different behavior between them. And so you end up with a lot more of a flexible code base because the definitions aren't living within their class systems. The definitions are kind of being composed on the fly. And that's the idea here is instead of like this mortgage type dot new, it's actually mortgage dot new and 
pass in a big array of all the different configuration of that mortgage. And so I, I think that the bicycle example is still really good to explain it, but I'm not sure if it's all that practical in the real world. So Cer let's talk a little bit. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's kind of an interesting example because here I am thinking like, I don't know, man, inheritance seems like a pretty good solution to this. We had like a, we had like the <laughs> template method going on. You'd have like a, you would like raise a not implemented error if like you didn't have like the method that you needed to be sending it. But I think the mortgage example that you're just explaining where it would be composed of like a ton of different things does make sense. And imagine having to have like a different type of mortgage and then creating a new class and then implementing the template method and duct typing and having like a ton of methods that may, may or may not have, I don't know, may or may not have anything to do with the actual class. Seems sort of painful maybe is, is the word to describe it. But yeah, I, I don't I don't know about the pros and cons. It just seems like everyone in this space tends to lean towards saying things like you should always use composition and never use inheritance. Yeah, that's how she closes this chapter is like whenever you're in doubt about inheritance versus composition, go with composition. Don't use inheritance, which is interesting. And, and it makes sense because they both provide nearly the exact same benefits that you're reusing code between different classes, but composition is a lot more flexible in its implementation because you can pass it between more objects and it's more easily reused. And there isn't this like tower that you're building. It's more of these plug and play Lego bricks, which makes a lot of sense. And really, it really boils down to the idea of specialization. Is the child class truly a specialization of its parent class? And I always go back to the example of a notification parent class with different notification subclasses. And I think that probably still is valid, but you could absolutely implement that same notification example that I always beat with composition and just have different modules mixed between them or different ways to instantiate and pass the attributes accordingly. Yeah, I think truly it's just because inheritance is so rigid. Um, once you like to find that structure, it's almost like, you know, in a real world example, in a prod code base, like if you have this like really crazy rigid structure of inheritance, you know, there's probably no there's probably no going back from that. You're never gonna like refactor that to use composition. One, because you know business goals, two, because that'd probably take way too much time and it's probably just not worth it. So it's probably just like, hey, if you're, you know, choosing between the two, you're probably better off choosing composition because it's more flexible and because you're not like so tied down to this like specialization idea. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think overall it's true, but like one of the downsides, looking at the code where we're at now, because I want to get back to the specific code example, to create a new type of road bike, we have to call bicycle.new, pass in an array of parts that define a road bike. And that's how we would instantiate a road bike. Like that is way less explicit than roadbike.new as far as trying to understand what this code is doing. And because as of right now, it's bicycle.new parts and then a big array of all types of parts. That's where our code base is at right now. So there's one piece here that's really ugly is that when we're instantiating a new bicycle, we're passing in this big string array of all the different parts our bicycle requires defining those. So it'll be like tires, two, size 10 inch, or wouldn't be 10 inch, 30 centimeter, whatever the size tire is. <laughs> and, you know, crankshaft one and gearbox cassette one. And it's defining this big array. And like, that is not readable. That is not flexible. And in a lot of ways, like hard coding those strings into a new instantiation is not a great way to approach it. So Sandy recommends, which is a great way to approach this, is to create a parts factory. 
So a factory is basically a service object that is responsible for building things, so creating things. And so within this parts factory, she defines some different methods that are configs. And I loved this approach in the parts factory. So there's a road bike config, there's a mountain bike config. And so within mountain bike config, basically all that method returns is all of the big array that is a base class that defines a mountain bike. So then we can call bicycle.new parts, parts factory dot build mountain bike dot config <laughs> which again like is better at least we don't have this giant array of stuff it's a little bit more readable and it makes more sense but at the same time like i do feel like i'm fighting to use this composition implementation more than it feels natural like it did before in all the refactoring so far however again like i said i think when you're dealing with highly specialized objects and there's a lot of nuances to them, this is a way better approach because of how malleable it is, like our mortgage example. So let's talk a little bit about this parts factory and why that's better and maybe something I missed. I think I missed something in this. Yeah, okay, so even before we do that, like we, we're introducing this idea of a, a singular part. And so, okay, so we made the parts class, right? We made this parts object and then Sandy, distills it down even more and says, okay, at the end of the day, we should have this parts object that returns an array of singular parts, part singular. So you have parts, the class parts, and then you have the class part. And parts is composed of many part objects. Hopefully that made sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's a funny like syntactual nuance, but it's really important to understand that bicycle parts is a single like bike bike parts is a singular object that defines a collection of part objects and a part object would be like a tube or a spoke that would be a single part mm -hmm. within the parts object so if you think about our like our array within a road bike config one of those little lines in the array would be a single part yeah totally okay and so we have to think like okay what does this factory solve so then we we, we run into this problem where Every time we want a new part, we have to instantiate it, right? So we have to do like, okay, I want to I want to make a chain. So I'll do like chain equals part.new, and then I would like describe the chain. And it's like, okay, now I want a handlebar. So I do handlebar equals part.new, and then I would describe that. And so you think like, okay, this kind of this composition thing's kind of weird. I have to like make all these objects. Like what's going on? Like before, this was just all sort of just all happened inside of my bicycle class. Which, you know, now saying that out loud kind of doesn't really make sense to have parts inside of a bicycle. Anyways, right. that's, that's neither that's neither here <laughs> nor there. It's true though, yeah. <laughs> that's neither here nor there. So the problem is, is like, okay, I need to make all these different objects of all these different parts. So how can we do that in a more scalable way? And so the proposed solution to that is exactly what we're talking about: is these two-dimensional arrays that describe the parts. So like, let's say I wanted a road like a road bike part configuration array. So this would be a two-dimensional array where each item inside of this array is an array that describes the parts. For example, an, an example of you know an array inside of this two-dimensional array would be like chain. And it, I would describe it just as strings, like chain and chain is 10 speed. And I could just make a ton of these new objects. So now the problem with this is that, is this readable? Maybe, maybe not. And so this makes a lot of assumptions. Like I have to know the data structure going into this. So like, I have to be able to send a very specific data structure to this parts factory versus just not having to deal with that at all or passing like, you know, chain to the bicycle object or like just relying on the fact that the bicycle will make a chain because 
I just expect it to do that. So now composition sort of flips that on its head like it's different. So now you have to make very deliberate moves and you have to make very deliberate data structures that maybe you only know about. So that is the drawback is that to make these configuration objects like you as a user, you as a programmer have to have to, you know, not like hard code these things, but you have to be very deliberate in the data structures that you're constructing. And so, you know, this, you know, this does pose problems like later on down the line when, you know, a new developer comes to see this code and they're like, this is like, what's this strange two-dimensional array thing? But that is just like inherently built in, right? So like composition does have pros and cons, but the, the cool part about this is that you can make factories based on this data structure. So like, as long as you have this data structure down, you can like, just pump out these different road bike part arrays. Mm -hmm. All these different configs. And what's interesting though, like you say, it might be kind of hard to like get your head around when you're first in a code base like this. But at the same time, a code base that doesn't use composition still defines all these attributes somewhere. And what I like about this is it explicitly defines where the attribute definitions go. Like so many of the attributes against an object in our code bases are just kind of buried in methods somewhere. And it's like, oh, there's that one integer value that's on line 45 of the subclass user object that's defining this value of something against a user. And it's oftentimes just kind of buried in strings or arrays or integers within methods, within objects. And so I like this idea that it's explicitly defining these different attributes in its own place. And so it's like, well, if I need to make changes to the bike parts, I know exactly where to go and how to make changes on those objects, knowing it's not going to break any of the shit down the chain. Where... You know, it might be a little bit less comfortable at first when using it. Like it's not roadbike.new.shocks to get those different shocks against a road bike. It's bicycle.new parts, parts factory build, road bike park config. It feels a bit awkward to use, but in practice, it's way more flexible. And I would say it's a little bit more explicit in that it shows you all of its data and where it's at. It's like, here's my data. Here's here's exactly what my configs look like. And if you need to add one, that's where you add it. So it gives a really clear path on how that should be structured. Yeah, totally. At the end of the day, complex code bases are going to be complex, right? Yep. Like yep. you're going to, there is going to, you're never going to go into a code base, go through a class in one go and be like, okay, I totally understand everything about this <laughs> class or I totally understand right. everything about this module. So I think at the end of the day, it's just, you know, Things are going to be complex. You're going to have to follow it. And maybe composition provides a solution for code that's easier to follow or easier to reason about because, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe you can follow the chain or you can follow like the stack a lot easier. Cool. Do you have any closing thoughts on composition? Yeah, I just wanted to sort of maybe like summarize what it is we all talked about because for all I know, listening back on this might just be like a bunch of mumbo jumbo. (laughs) Fair enough. But I just want to po- I just want to point out like the main difference again. I just want to reiterate the main difference between our code as it's made with inheritance and our code as it's composed with composition. And so I think you could see the difference just in how you would instantiate a new bicycle object even, right? Because with inheritance, if I want a road bike, I'm going to do roadbike.new, right? And that and that's like that's really the big difference. With composition, I wouldn't be doing that. I would just be calling what what we used to be calling the base class. So we don't we no longer have this idea of of crazy super specializations of our base class with composition. 
we wouldn't do roadbike.new, we would just do bike.new, and we would pass in basically, at the end of the day, what is it? It's just a configuration object to tell me like, whatever specialization I want, I'm passing that in as some sort of configuration. In our example, it just happened to be a parts object or a parts array. Um, maybe it's different. Maybe in another example, it's just an, maybe it's just a hash that has like some values that are read. And based on those values, you know, maybe it spins up another factory and, and, and then creates our specialization. So the difference is, is that now with composition, our bicycle is composed of things that we want it to be composed of instead of directly saying, hey, I want a road bike. You are responsible. The road bike class is now responsible for creating this very specific specialization of what a bicycle is supposed to be. So I'm basically just saying, hey, I trust you to, to make me a, a road bike. Go make me a road bike. And the road bike specialization class with inheritance says, OK, here's your road bike. In composition, it it almost like gives me more control, right? So it's like, I'm just saying, here's a bike and here's how I want it to be made. I want it to be composed of X, Y, and Z. Go compose these things and give me back what I asked for. So even just like speaking through that out loud is like the too long didn't listen, like summary of the differences between our code before and our code after is I think composition really just like gives you more control almost at the level of instantiation instead of like trusting things to come back as you asked for them you can you can make decisions and compose things like almost on the fly yeah and this is how sandy puts it quote think of it this way for the cost of arranging objects in a hierarchy you get message delegation for free unquote so the ideas that you were saying is like instead of roadbike.new using the hierarchy system the inheritance system we do bicycle.new with the array of parts that defines its attributes because it's not automatically delegating those messages we're having to explicitly define those messages when using our interface and really there's pros and cons to both and but you know she closes this chapter with like a really strong idea is that the general rule when you're faced with a problem that composition can solve you should be biased in doing so meaning like unless you can explicitly define and defend why you're using inheritance over composition just use composition so i'm going to really start challenging myself because composition is not something that i use commonly in my code bases and i'm going to start trying to push myself toward thinking in this way i just i think probably partly coming from the Ruby and the Rails land, it's really easy for me just to inherit from subclasses and just work that way and work on inheritance, which has gotten me a really long way, but I can see where composition is really gonna help me to have more flexible interfaces moving forward. It's really interesting and it, it's surprising that this is like where the whole book built to, to me. It's really, because it feels a little bit less like it's not as pretty in use to me. Like bicycle.new with a parts factory within it is not as pretty or eloquent as roadbike.new. But in a lot of ways, it's a lot more flexible and a lot more powerful because you have more options on the fly to use these objects in different ways to, to find and extract new behavior and to modify existing behavior. Yeah, totally. And so since this is like kind of like the last chapter before we get into just like testing, really, I want to reiterate the different ways of code sharing, because I used to think of composition as like including a module, but that's not what it is at all. Even though it seems like, oh, I'm composing something, I'm just going to include a bunch of methods in it. That is just another mechanism for code sharing. So this book talks about basically three, three ways of code sharing. You can code share through inheritance, through composition, and also through like modules, like including modules, extending modules. So those are three different ways of code sharing and they all have, you know, their pros and cons, but they're all very different, which is 
super, super interesting to me because I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up because every time I used to hear composition, I would think like, oh yeah, you just include some modules. And then now that object is composed of different other different methods. That's not true at all. You can use code sharing through modules and also have composition, or you can do composition without doing code sharing through including modules is what I wanted to say. Yeah, hundred percent. There was one funny distinction, which I wanted to touch on really quick, because I've made this mistake in the past, talking about composition versus aggregation. And so these both concepts encompass composition, and you can kind of call them composition broadly. And this is how Sandy breaks it down. A meal is composed of an appetizer. An appetizer does not survive outside of the meal. When the meal is gone, by definition, the appetizer is gone. So therefore, a meal is composed of an appetizer. She gave a different example, but I'm going to give this one to define an aggregate. A band is an aggregate of musicians. When the band breaks up, the musicians don't die. So in the example of the meal, like the appetizer's gone when the meal is gone, but in the example of a band, the, the musicians still exist when the band doesn't exist anymore. And so the band is a composition of musicians where, where the meal is composed of an appetizer and other things. And it's a funny distinction. And, and like Sandy talks about, it doesn't really impact your code in any really broad way, but it's important to think about how the objects should relate and whether they have their own life cycles distinct from each other when thinking about composition. It's just a helpful distinction. And she touched on it at the end of the chapter. So I want to touch on it real quick. Wait, Remind me, which one's the aggregate? Is the food the aggregate or is the band the aggregate? Band is an aggregate, but Okay, so broadly, it can exist without, okay. Mm -hmm. It can exist without is an aggregate of other things, which makes sense. And like she talked about, she's like, it, it's not that 100% important and at the same time, like both these things are composition. So whether we're, it's a meal or the band, they're both the broadly the idea of composition, but there's this kind of sub-distinction of an aggregate, which is objects that really stand on their own two feet outside of the idea of their parents or outside of the idea of their collection. So like a bike part does exist and stand on its own. In a way, a bike is an aggregate of bike parts because those bike oh, parts have other uses okay. in themselves. But there's other things that aren't aggregates of their parents. And a good example would be, you know, maybe something, you can make an argument that something like uh, ground beef could potentially be a, you know, part of something that's a hamburger that has value within your platform. And like, of course, like you could begin talking more like you can get really far into this and be like, well, everything stands on its own, but it's like, does it have a life cycle in your application and in practical terms and the, the scope of the domain that we're talking about? So that's the kind of idea there is that something that stands on its own. So that was one last distinction. Cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. I wish I wish I had known that distinction when we were reading domain driven design, because I felt like we were talking about aggregates and we just like may or may not have known what we were talking about. But I feel like <laughs> that clears things up so well after, especially after reading the first step, rereading the first seven chapters of this book or re eight chapters, I guess. Yeah. Um, that distinction between aggregates and like an aggregate versus a, comp a composed object. Really cool. Anyways, do you have any picks for this week? I do. My pick is a book by David Hinemeyer Hansen and Jason Freed, and the book is titled It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. It's a really good read just about work-life balance and doing great deep work but not driving yourself crazy. I've really gotten a lot out of it, and I'm going to start rereading it pretty soon because it's been about a month since I read it, and it's like, okay, I really need to take some of this stuff to heart. I feel like I have really been implementing this stuff the past month or so, and nothing has greater impacted my efficiency or output overall happiness and health in my career. It's been totally an awesome book. Strong recommend. It's a very easy read. 
And it's just a lot of really practical stuff. I will say it's probably really, really good if you are either a freelancer or own your own gig, because some of the stuff you may not be able to implement in your day job, which is fortunate. But I think anyone will get a lot of great stuff and tips about work-life balance out of this book. Sweet. Yeah, I got to pick that book up. That's cool. My pick for this week is going to be Khan Academy, which is like kind of weird to say because, you know, as our good friend Ryan is like, that's like one of his competitors, I guess, with with him and Melissa. Um, <laughs> anyways, Khan Academy is really cool because this year, one of my New Year's resolutions is to like get better at math. And like, I want to just like revisit everything from all the way from algebra all the way to calculus. And it's been maybe over 10 years since I last took a calculus class. But man, I really like doing math. I thought calculus was pretty fun. And I was an art major in in college, but I did very well in, in calculus my freshman year. But ever since freshman year of college, I haven't taken a single math class. And so <laughs> my basic algebra is is very rusty. But it's like riding a bicycle, no pun intended. It, it just yeah. comes right back to you. And Cod Academy is cool because it like explains the concepts. And there's like, I don't know, as like a as like a learning platform, I think we have come so far. Like in 2018, the the resources available for you to just like say, hey, I want to relearn algebra or I want to relearn calculus. There's just so many resources out there that are free and it's absolutely mind-boggling to me. When I think about like what technology used to be when I was a freshman in college or even like a high a senior in high school, there was like nothing like this. You could never just be like, hey, I want to like watch a couple of videos or I, I want to watch a video series on how to like integrate by parts. It, like you would have to like go to a tutor or like reread your textbook a hundred times or Google. I don't even know what internet search results looked like back then. <laughs> but anyways, that's a long way to say that Cod Academy is really cool. Technology's come super, super far and anything you want to learn is like honestly just there it's on the internet you can learn anything you want and i think that's the the internet right now has become like a really powerful resource in doing that yeah i think we're definitely in a golden era that there's all these like really interactive videos like it's more than just the data that's there it's like there's actually communities and resources to really dig into it and learn whatever your style is which is really super cool so good pick that's awesome next week we've got the final chapter of practical object oriented design and it's all about de designing effective tests so i'm excited to close out this book strong and we will see you next chapter thanks so much for listening all right. Thanks so much. Peace.